Hi. Hey. Who are you? Oh, wait a minute. Who are you? Um, I'm Liza. And I'm Riz. And this is the Little Sleep Much Reading Podcast. sleeping and so much reading his brain dried up and he went completely out of his mind did you see this whole the barnes and noble fiasco on twitter Mm -mm. lit news basically barnes and noble announced that they're no longer gonna be stalking debut books debut author hardcovers if they don't have the numbers to show that they would sell well which is really 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 bad mm-hmm. um and it would be like particularly bad for authors of color women authors authors in translation like it would just be a, a whole crap show um and they are not doing a very good job explaining why they're doing this. And they're not doing a very good job covering their their butts for what with their explanation for why they're doing this. And it's like been a whole big thing on writer Twitter of writers being like, what the fuck? So that's the lit news of the week. <laughs> Come on, guys. I hate that so much because I honestly I read a lot of debut authors yeah like half the books I feel like I've read this year have been debut authors I'm just thinking like we're already doing so much better as a company right than we were years ago I don't like I can understand if we were losing a bunch of money, but I don't feel like we are. No, it's it's not. And the other thing is like, Barnes and Noble is the last brick and mortar book selling institution in the United States, right? Because we have all of our indie bookstores, which we love, um, but Amazon, you know, has been a problem and they've like taken over and they, and it's even put like Barnes and Noble in jeopardy, but Barnes and Noble finally made like a comeback and we're doing such cool shit that people, even people who like don't like big corporations were like, honestly, not every town's going to have an indie bookstore, but as long as every town, like every few towns has a Barnes and Noble and Barnes and Noble is thriving online, we're good because it will keep brick and mortar bookstores alive and keep money out of Amazon's pockets. And now you can get any book on Amazon. And now you have Barnes and Noble saying, we're not going to stock debut author hardcovers. What, where, where are these debut author hard seller? Like, where are they going to, where are they going to get their books sold? Because they're going to get gypped. That's not a good term. They're going to get like, um, screwed over by Amazon. And then they're getting screwed over by the one place they could do numbers. Barnes and Noble. So it's all up to they themselves, the publisher and indie bookstores that are barely able to keep themselves afloat, let alone dozens and dozens and dozens of debut authors. Amazon does 
docked many debut authors. They do. And and so but then the, the did it isn't the thing with Amazon like that the authors don't get as much money from Amazon as they do from Barnes and Noble? I don't know. I there's something about the way Amazon does its its selling of books that I think authors would rather have their books selling from indie bookstores and places like Barnes and Noble than Amazon. Just because of the way the num the way the numbers end up working out. I don't know the logistics of it. But it's like, yeah, so that's really fucking shitty. Barnes and Noble, what are you doing? I know. That like pissed me the hell off. It pissed me the hell off. Gonna have to go to work and complain to my manager about it. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then it's gonna fall on booksellers to like shortlist stuff. And it's just gonna be a whole it's gonna be a whole big thing. It's gonna be a whole big thing that didn't need to happen. And again, when people come to Barnes and Noble looking for certain books and we don't have them. They're going to go right to Amazon. They're going to go right to Amazon. They're not going to spend time looking for indie. I mean, like, yeah, you can buy it. You can buy, you can order from any indie bookstore and they will ship you books. doesn't matter if they are in a different state or whatever. They will ship you books. But it's just, people aren't going to look for that. No, it's shysty. And it's shysty too, because it's like, I don't need another... I don't need another Danielle Steele, James Patterson, CJ Box. Like, like only stocking hardcovers of repeat authors is kind of ruining literature because those bestsellers, those repeat authors often aren't very good. <laughs> like, I can think of on one hand, like some prolific authors who are good. But to not stop, like, I'm picturing all of the current hardcovers that I'm, like, interested in buying, and I'm pretty sure they're all debut authors. It's really shitty. It makes no sense. I think about, like, the Jeanette McCurdy book. I mean, I know she kind of doesn't count because she's already famous or whatever, but she does count. Yeah. And if Barnes Noble, for whatever reason, refused to sell her book, that book is flying off shelves they would have lost so much money i mean the numbers that her book is doing is astounding like i have actually never really seen a hardcover sell that fast it can't be kept on the shelves like that's like that's how much it's selling and that's a debut author like And there's just no way to prove too whether something's going to do numbers because their excuse is like if it will think if we think it will do numbers we'll stock it, but y'all don't know how like book talk works like y'all don't know how like like a book could not be popping off for the first like week or two of sales the second one popular book talker puts it on their profile everybody and their mom is going to be trying to buy the book and then they're not going to mm-hmm. be able to buy it at Barnes and Noble like yeah. huh. I've been thinking about that a lot recently too with book talk. There are so many books that I think, which again, this is me being a little bit narcissistic, but that I think should be pushed rather than the books that we are constantly seeing pushed on book talk. And I know that book talk is heavily 
romance. Yeah, it's just it just is. Don't know why. Just the way that it is. And I get that, but I mean there's so many horror books and fiction books, like regular literary fiction books that should be pushed on BookTok. And I'm like, how how do we get those because I think book talkers are great. They're yeah. great readers. They know what they want. They know what they're looking for. Amazing. Cool, cool, cool. Why are we not pushing other things? Right. Right. Especially because the things that are being pushed are things that don't need help. Right. Colleen Hoover does not need you to buy her book. She doesn't need it. That girl, listen, people, she does not need your money. Not even a little. <laughs> no. Christina Lauren does not need your money. No. Al Kennedy does not need your money. None of these bitches need your money, babe. Like sometimes it's like, what are we doing, guys? I think we gotta like, I don't know. Something's gotta give. Maybe this Barnes and Noble situation will like start making people like become more passionate about debut authors. And we'll see like a renaissance, a resurgence of people pushing for debut authors on book talk, bookstagram, booktube. And that's how we'll keep the support for these debut authors. Mm-hmm. I mean, including in any job, like bitch, I'm sure there's some romance debut authors who need some love. Without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. Like, like the world is bigger than Colleen Hoover much bigger this episode also comes out september 1st which is library month and let this be a reminder to get a library card and get your colleen hoovers from the library besties even if you don't use your library card get one get one because it doesn't matter if you're constantly using it or not they're just looking at if you have one right so if 20 people get a library card and only five people are using it, they don't care. They only care about the 20 who bought it. Right. Bada bing, bada boom. Um, so yeah, that's sort of an overview of the last week in Lit News. That's how we feel about that. That's how we feel about that. Whose fucking birthday is it? Not mine. Not mine. But it's somebody who we love. Someone who me and Liza would both die for. I would die for. If this person wasn't already dead, I'd fucking die for them. It's Mary Shelley. It's Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley. Who is Mary Shelley? Who the hell? Who? I never heard of her. Who is she? I never heard of her in my life. I don't know her. And I never know about Frankenstein. Never. That is. Mm-mm. Um. Mary Shelley, would we say grandmother of horror? Yes. We've discussed this. We say grandmother of horror is Mary Shelley, and mother of horror is Shirley Jackson. Yes. Period. And Mary Shelley was born on August thirtieth, seventeen ninety-seven. That's a long time ago, Queen. America was a baby. America had just been America. And horror was just a twinkle. 
It's a little twinkle in a young Mary baby Mary Shelley's eye. Doesn't that make your heart feel happy? It makes me so happy. I'm so glad this this bitch was born. She's our hero. I think we would all die just a little bit for Mary Shelley. Everybody, everybody should. Everybody should die for Mary Shelley. Any any lady who likes to read, any woman who likes to write, any person who likes horror, Mary is everything. She's the one. She's the one. Um, Goth queen, first of all, first and foremost. (laughs) Spooky as hell. Supposedly lost her virginity on the grave of her parents which is just my favorite thing that's maybe ever that's my favorite thing she ever did other than write frankenstein probably and just think of all the things frankenstein has done without mary show you know what i mean yeah i mean monster horror every single piece of monster horror is frankenstein we simply just do not be making monsters like that anymore. No. And the other thing that I was just thinking about when it comes to Mary Shelley is like, she invented horror as a whole, but she also invented this this horror that like uh, people like us and other horror lovers love so much. That's like horror as a means to explore explore real life issues and real life horrors and sorrows through things like monsters and she invented that dude and she was born in the late 1700s and she did that she did that how wild is that how wild is that how insane and she was a lady and she was a lady and she was so spooky and she was so smart and she was a feminist um and she was a freak she was a little freaky she was a little freaky girl um yeah she was just we kind of owe her our life I think. I also think. I think she also basically, when she invented horror, invented science fiction. Sounds about right to me. We've had that dialogue before. Like, is Frankenstein horror? Is it science fiction? Is it both? But she really damn did that. She did two genres. She said, okay, let me say this. Here we go. This is what she said. I'm just going to sprinkle a little bit of that. Speak a little bit. I'm actually wearing a Frankenstein shirt. I love it. The Boris Karloff Frankenstein. Have you seen this film? I haven't. When he throws her, when Frankenstein's monster throws that little girl into the lake. I've seen clips of it, but I haven't. I've never seen the full thing. Um, have you seen Young Frankenstein? No. <gasps> Marissa, you would love that movie. I hate Frankenstein adaptations, like the movies. 
have you seen the? I'm just gonna keep listing off Frankenstein adaptations. Have you seen the one that's James McAvoy and Daniel Radcliffe? No. It's actually pretty good. Liza, are you lying to me? No, I'm not. But I sometimes we have different tastes. But it's not scary at all. Is it silly goofy? Young Frankenstein is very silly goofy. It's hilarious. It's like one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. The other one I'm talking about is like even more about Igor than it is about Dr. Frankenstein. And it's more, I guess, like, I don't even know what freaking genre I would call it, but it's not horror. Like, it's not scary, but it's not funny. It's more like, I don't even know, but it's what it is, you know? It is what it is. It is what it is. Um, did you know that Mary Shelley died of a brain tumor? I did not. That's like a fact that I just found out. Isn't it weird that uh, brain tumors are, like, still killing people and we don't really know what to do about that? I know. Like, literally, 1851 is when Harry Shelley died. Brain tumor. I also, that makes me really sad because I guess the brain tumor, she had it for, like, a really long time before she died, like, 10 years, and it actually stopped her from being able to read and write which makes me actually like violently depressed. Yeah, that really hurts my feelings. That was like gut-wrenching right there. That really hurt my feelings, Liza. I'm sorry! Damn. That's tragic for a writer in a way so many other things like aren't. Yeah. Like, a writer and a reader would rather have so many things happen, I think, than that. I would. I definitely would. I would rather lose my damn mind, but yeah. still be able to write. Right. Imagine yeah. the crazy things. It would be great. Yeah, for real. Where is Mary Shelley buried? Because we should probably go there. Nowhere close to us. Far, no. far away. No. It's probably in England. I don't... It doesn't say. But I think her parents are buried with her, which is nice. Oh, that would be really nice. Yeah, it says, in order to fulfill Mary Shelley's wishes, the coffins of Mary Shelley's parents were exhumed and buried with her. Oh, here we go. In Bournemouth, in, in Dorset, England. What about Percy? I don't think he's buried with her. <laughs> this dumb bitch do we hate percy shelley i'm not a fan i'm not a fan hate is probably a strong word but i don't like him mm -mm. i don't like him one not my favorite not my favorite mm -mm. um we do however stand mary shelley's mom yes Mary Wollstonecraft. And now she's I also another bad B. She's a bad B. And I read about her basically for my book this week. What wait, yeah, let's say what did we what did we read? Marissa, what, what what did you read? I read a very tiny little book called Mary Shelley Gothic Tales. And it's so cute. Mm -hmm. It's such a cute little book. And it, it's like 
uh, it's not a glossy cover. It's like a soft cover. So it feels really good in your hands. I read a novel called Love and Fury. And I freaking love the cover. I think it's beautiful. The cover is gorgeous. Um, and it's about the life and times of Mary Wollstonecraft, Mary Shelley's mom. And yeah, I'll talk more about it when I talk about it, but I freaking love this book and I loved learning about Mary through her mom, Mary, and also learning about Mary. <laughs> we love learning about Mary's. It was a whole ass freaking vibe. But yeah, my book literally takes place in August of 1797. The book begins August 30th, 1797, the birth date of Mary Shelley. Um, and it and it continues through the few days to like kind of, I think almost a week after she's born. Um, it flips back and forth between the perspective of Mrs. B, who is a midwife who's helping to bring Mary Shelley into the world and uh, Mary Wollstonecraft. And the perspective it kind of follows is like watching the birth and the aftermath of the birth through Mrs. B um, and sort of what what Mary Wollstonecraft's life looked like at that time through Mrs. B. And then flipping back and forth between that and Mary Wollstonecraft telling the ba baby Mary Shelley about her life looking back on her entire life from when she was a little girl to the present day um it was a gorgeous book I was saying to Marissa before we started recording I was very surprised by how much I liked this book I picked it obviously because I was intrigued by the premise of it being from the perspective of Mary Wollstonecraft and and taking place during the birth of Mary Shelley the literal birth of Mary Shelley um and I loved the cover and I just liked the concept but like once I decided once I like was beginning to read it and I was like it is historical fiction uh it is historical fiction based on a real person I was like I don't know if this is going to be one of my top books that I've read so far this year but I really 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 ended up liking it without further ado I guess I'll get right into the writing scale Oh, the other cool thing about this author is Samantha Silva. She has another book called Mr. Dickens and His Carol, which now I really want to read, which takes place during the Christmas that Charles Dickens wrote The Christmas Carol. And now knowing that I love her writing style so much, I think I would really love that book because I guess if I had to pick a favorite classic male author, other than maybe Oscar Wilde, I would pick Charles Dickens. I think The Christmas Carol is like maybe the best like story one of the best stories ever so I really want to read that now the other thing I'll say too just about it being historical fiction and me being like very pleasantly surprised by how much I liked it if you guys will remember the first episode of the Aruba tapes I read in the time of the butterflies by Isabella Allende and that was another book that was historical fiction but written about real people and I just think it's such a talent to like breathe life into people who were literally real but to paint them in this way that like creates a really enthralling 
fictional read that just feels like a very a rare talent and it also I love when I read something and I can tell that somebody did just a fuck ton of research and you can really tell that Samantha Silva did that for this book and I'm sure the same goes for Mr. Dickens and his Carol so I'm gonna definitely read that around Christmas time that's another one for people if they sound interested in this I want to I might want to give that a try as well. For readability, I gave this book an 8.5. Never have I had a historical fiction where I was so curious about what was going to happen next. It was really, I guess the stakes all fell in the actual front story. Because if you don't know, Mary Wilsoncraft died a few days after she gave birth to Mary Shelley. She never got to see her daughter grow up, which is really sad, especially after reading this. Um, and it was a whole thing because at first it seemed like Mary Shelley wasn't going to survive and that Mary Wilsoncraft would, but then it kind of did a 180 flip and Mary Shelley, as her health grew, her mother's health deteriorated. So th there's a high stakes to this book in that aspect of it. But I was just like plowing through it in terms of listening to Mary Wilsoncraft recount her, her life to her newborn daughter. It's like, I guess, I don't know. I've never, I know this isn't a biography, it's fiction, but like, I've yet to read a biography where I was like, I gotta know what's going on, like what's happening next. And I think this book was just so well-crafted and it was basically a biography in a lot of ways, even though it was fiction, that like, I think it also helped too that I didn't know anything about Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, I knew she was a feminist. I knew she was the mother of Mary Shelley. But that's about the baseline that I knew. And now it's like from reading this book, I have a new like literary feminist hero, which I think is very cool and fun and fresh. For language and style, I gave this book an eight. I really like Samantha Silva's writing style. I'll get into it more when I talk about characterization because I think her writing style really shines when it comes to the characters because it wasn't particularly like unique per se or like anything like that but it was just very beautiful and and really shined when it comes came through the voices of her characters basically I guess I can admit form I gave it a six but I do think it was helpful to have it being back and forth between Mrs. B, the midwife with the front story and Mary Wollstonecraft with the backstory. I think it would have been two very different books if it was just one or the other. So I do like that about it. And that's why I kind of left that in mind only as a six because it wasn't like incredibly experimental, but it was interesting and it did serve, I guess, the plot of the book. For shelfworthiness, I gave this book an eight. I'm definitely hanging on to this and I would actually, I might even consider reading it again. I think this might borderline on a must read. Like, I feel like I, I err on the side of caution usually when saying that, because we've talked about it a hundred times on here. Not everything is going to be for everybody, but this was so outside of my regular style and I loved it so much that I do think for, for people who, like us who love Mary Shelley and want to know more about how she came into the world and who she came from this would be a really great read and it was just, I don't know it was just really good like I said I was very 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 pleasantly surprised 
four, plot. I struggled with this in the same way I remember struggling with in the time of the butterflies. This was a real person's life. So you can't really say the same things about plot when you're talking about it as you can with stuff that's completely made up. But I gave the plot of this book an eight. Like I said, there was something about the way in which Mary Wollstonecraft was relaying her life to her daughter that was so bingeable and left you always wanting to see what was going to happen to her next. And I'll get into it more in a minute when I talk about characterization once again, but so attached to the character and so attached to what was going on. And Mary Wollstonecraft lived a really, really crazy life. Like I said, I knew nothing about her before I read this book. And she was incredible. And she was so forward thinking for her time. When you think about it, she was born in the like freaking mid to early even 1700s girl <laughs> and she was a feminist and she thought she thought all these amazing things and she was a writer and she was writing novels and she was writing the feminist theory and she was hanging out with you know thomas Paine and and all these people who you think of as like the the four the front men of the Age of Enlightenment, and she herself was a frontman of the Age of Enlightenment as a woman. Uh, the other really cool thing about this book, which it told me, I didn't know, I don't know, I don't know if this is, this could be Samantha Silva's speculation, but it also paints Mary Wollstonecraft as bisexual, which I would not be surprised if she was, and I'm guessing through doing her research, Samantha Silva found key context clues that basically confirmed this but I don't know if that's like I don't think Mary Wollstonecraft ever said girlies I'm bisexual but like uh that is a like a really cool facet of the plot of this book and of her character the other cool thing about it is it takes I I I history I count myself as somebody who like is pretty good with history but the way things line up I I often don't put them like two and two together so this was taking place Mary Wollstonecraft was in her 20s, late 20s, early 30s, during the French Revolution, aka like when Marie Antoinette was assassinated. And she was living in Paris at the time. So she was watching the French Revolution occur. Granted, there was quite a few French revolutions, and this is like the, la the last of it, them, I think. But it's just so funny how you don't realize like, the mother of Mary Shelley was in Paris to bear witness to the guillotining of Marie Antoinette. Huh? Like, that's just, that was such like a cool and interesting backdrop for what a large portion of the plot that I think was very cool and again showed Samantha Silva's level of research last but not least for characterization I gave this book a nine I was deeply deeply invested in these characters going back to the research one more time I can't imagine the amount of research Samantha Silva went through to capture these characters in this way I'd love to like hear more about how she what she did to prepare to take on the voice of Mary Wollstonecraft because she was just so vivid and so real and to take on that voice of a, to take on the voice of a writer as another writer 
it almost seems like a perfect match, but it also seems like it's hard in a way because how do you remove yourself enough from that voice to put in the voice of a, a different a different writer and I just think that's really cool but I thought all the characters were so right like Mrs. B was like a great character even baby Mary Shelley had like a character to her even though she was a baby her father her sister all of the people that Mary Wollstonecraft encountered through her life were all very vivid and bright and felt very real and I just love when that happens. And I think her her talents as a writer really show through her ability to show characters humanity and their voices. Um, so yeah, Love and Fury, Samantha Silva, the literal birth of Mary Shelley. Read it, pick it up, that's all she wrote. I wonder if, because I know a lot of people from any time period that's not this time period kept a lot of diaries and journals and things. And I wonder if also just by reading her writing, she could have gotten into her headspace somehow. Totally. But I don't, that is hard to. I don't know though because I think about it and I'm like when I write depending on what I write it's like I'm not me like I'm I'm in the role of a character so I am that character agreed and I've you too have have created characters who aren't you yeah who feel so removed and so different from you even though but but again there is still a part of you and and to write from a real person, like you are a real person who is a writer. You, Yeah, you do have to figure out how to remove yourself and make sure you're not writing as you and you're writing as them. You have to become to know the character like they're a real person. Mm-hmm. And that's just so interesting to do with a person who was a real person, let alone a real writer. But the other thing I was thinking about too, that like, I, w- I just want to talk to Samantha Silva about this now, because when you said we've both written characters that aren't us, that's incredibly true. And then the other funny thing about some of the characters we've written, or at least, I don't know if you feel, I definitely feel this way, are our friends. So like so many of the characters I've written are based off of my friends. And that I think helps to make a character feel very like real and well-rounded because even though you're creating this new person and discovering this new person, you're adding in these little tidbits of somebody who is very dear to you. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of, uh, my mom used to do a lot of work in museums and one museum that she worked at for a long time was Gillette's castle, which was like William Gillette's estate. And she did so much research on him that the way she talks about him is like he was her friend. And she even like refers to him as her friend because she feels like she knew him so well from being a historian of his life. 
That's actually really cute. Though. Isn't that cute? Yeah, so it like cute. touches my heart. It touches my heart. And I started to think maybe that's how Samantha Silva ended up feeling about Mary Wollstonecraft. And I like want to ask her, did you begin to see Mary Wollstonecraft as your friend because you discovered so much about her and did so much research on her? And that's why you write so fondly and, and vividly of her in this book because it's like the same as like you or I basing a character off each other mm-hmm. like we that that person is so dear to them and you feel like you know them so well that you can write such a like well-rounded character like did that happen with this historical figure I don't know but that would be really cute if it was the case <laughs> I find myself like I do write a lot about my friends and I base a lot of characters on my friends but I think more than anything I base characters on people who are no longer in my life yes so that I I don't know I think it's like some kind of power trip so that I own some piece of them but I wonder like with your with someone who you idolize like is that how you feel about it like are you like oh I wrote about them so I like have this piece of them with me always now do you know what I mean right right <laughs> That's just interesting. That's just a fun little thing to think about. It is a fun little thing to think about. I love that, Liza. <laughs> this was a good pick. Yay, I'm so happy. It makes me like happy inside. Even though the book was obviously very sad, it was also very happy. Right. It's like a reward. <laughs> and I, the mother-daughter Mary duo is definitely one that I think about a lot their relationship and everything I'm like just like Mary Shelley really had such a love for her mom that it not a lot of people do have I think and I just wonder how different things would have been for her if she would have had her mom in her life right and I wonder like she had a a lot of unfortunate circumstances with her own children and I just wonder how much like did she think I don't know like I feel like when bad things like that happen you always want your mom totally but yeah yeah she idolized her parents just thinking she loved her parents and they loved her it's very wholesome F Percy. Um, Percy Shelley. All my homies hate Percy Shelley. <laughs> Percy Shelley. Yeah. So, like I said, I read Mary Shelley Gothic Tales, and it's a really short thing. So, I, I'm going to tell everyone now go get it. So, for readability and interest, I gave it a seven. I didn't even really have time to think about, like, oh, is this a good read or not? It was just so fast. It happened so fast. The essay is on or the um so it starts with a short story called the mortal immortal and that's only like 30 pages and the font is big and you have at least an inch maybe a little bit more than an inch gap on the top and the bottom margins so yeah it's real short and then the essay which is called On Ghosts, only a little bit less than 20 pages. 
So it's a really quick read. So I gave it a seven because this is, again, because it's so short, it's not, you're not going to put a short story down in the middle of reading it. You're just, you're just not going to do that. You're going to keep reading it until it's done. For language and style, I gave it an eight. At first, I gave it a seven. Obviously, the language is a little bit outdated in the sense that um, this is from the time of Mary Shelley, just the time period. If you liked Frankenstein, then you're good, bestie. You'll like this. So, yeah. If you liked Frankenstein, you'll like this. I bumped it up to an eight because the writing in the essay specifically, I just thought was really beautiful. Maybe I'll read a little part from that. What have we left to dream about? The clouds are no longer the charioted servants of the sun, nor does he anymore bathe in his glowing brow in the bath of Thetis. The rainbow has ceased to be the messenger of the gods, and the thunder is no longer their awful voice, warning man of that which is to come. We have the sun, which has been weighed and measured, but not understood. We have the assemblage of the planets, the congregation of the stars, and yet unshackled ministration of the winds. Such is the list of our ignorance. I thought that was really, really pretty. But yeah, so because of the language in the essay, so I, I bumped it up to an eight. So for form, I didn't really do anything, but I will say, like I said, one short story, one essay, really short. Um, the essay has quotes within it, and I think they, and the essay starts with a quote um, also. Um, for shelf reading read again, I gave this an eight, and I'm going to tell you why. It's small. It's not going to take up any space on your shelf. It was not a ton of money. I think it's maybe $7. Besides that, I'm sure you can look these essays up online. I'm sure you can look up the essay, and I'm sure you can look up the short story, and you can find them online. Sure. Go ahead and do that. But it almost feels like a cult classic type thing. If you think of Mary Shelley, you're going to think of Frankenstein. Every, and, and she's so widely known for that. It's like to have something of hers that isn't Frankenstein and to have something of hers that isn't a, a a piece of fiction, but to have an actual essay that she wrote on something is so, I don't know, it's interesting. It feels like a little secret. Would I go back and reread it? Maybe. I don't know if I would reread the whole thing together, like how I did when I sat down and read this, but I would definitely go back and like reread the short story or reread the essay at different points in time for something as reference. I think it's super cool. It's super interesting. I think if you're a fan of Mary Shelley or Frankenstein, or if you're just a writer in general, then this is a cool thing to have on your shelf. I don't see why you wouldn't get it. So yeah, so I give it an eight. For plot, I also gave it an eight. So this first story is really cool. It's called The Mortal Immortal. And it's definitely sci-fi. This 
um, poor boy is in love with a girl who's also poor, but then her family dies and she becomes rich. And in the meantime, he's working for this scientist and um, he is determined to be with his childhood love despite their differences and despite her being a little bit salty with him um but i'm not gonna tell you everything because i want you to read it but it is really cool it is sci-fi again if you like the language in frankenstein and if you like the sci-fi aspects of frankenstein then this will this will be good for the essay this was my true favorite part of this mini book. I loved the essay. I found it so cool. And at first I was like, not as excited to read it, but it's fun to have a piece of nonfiction from her. And it's fun the way that she does it. She has two separate stories from people, real people, according to her, who have seen ghosts. <laughs> Which was really hilarious to me because, I don't know, do you guys ever just sit around with your friends and you talk about, like, ghosts and ghost stories and things that you've seen as a kid? Because I have done that all the time. We're, I feel like me and my friends and me and my family, were always telling ghost stories. And when I say ghost stories, I mean, like, I want to say nonfiction, like, actual real things that we have felt that we've seen we're we're, we tell our truth ghost stories I guess so I just thought that was so cool that I don't know somewhere down the line she met two different men who told her these two ghost stories and I mean I think they were both war men so to her they're like distinguished and they're courageous and also they're men so they're they have credit to them and she wrote these down and put them in like a meditative essay on on ghosts like that's so cool like Mary Shelley just like chilling with her homies and they're like you want to hear about this time I saw like one of the dead guys who I worked with and she's like hell yeah I just love that I thought that was so fun yeah so wildly cool and like I said the language in the essay was stunning I felt yeah so for characterization I'm giving it a six because I'm I can't write like the characters of the essay because there wasn't really like there wasn't really characters in the essay, but for the short story, I gave it a six. Um, I feel like the most colorful characters in the first story were either um, the main character's love and slash or the doctor scientist guy who he worked for. I think that could just be because those were the two characters who he interacted with the most. I think it's weird. I've always wondered this about many short stories, especially older short stories. I feel that they usually don't give the main character or the speaker a name until like a little ways into the story. And I don't understand why they do that. I've always found that so weird. Which I do, like, I understand that if there's a character who's narrating, they're not going to 
say their name, but I don't know. I do find it just a slightly odd thing. Like it almost is hard for me to conjure up a, uh, a main character in my brain without a name when I'm reading. Um, so yeah, that was just something weird. And I felt like there was one more thing. Oh, another thing that I found really, really interesting, but also kind of sad is that this is another main character. This is another time that Mary Shelley is writing from the perspective of a man. And I mean, she does it great. She does it wonderfully. But it is sad that that is often something that has to be done so that people will enjoy or read or take your work seriously in those days. So that's how I feel about that. And that's all she wrote. That's all she wrote. Am I wrong? Or is there also like um Edgar Allan Poe version of this same little um there is cute dynamic duo. There's the the Edgar Allan Poe one is cool and I wanted to read that one, but there is another one that I really wanted to read. Oh yeah, I, I meant to tell you there's a, a Christmas with uh Charles Dickens one Yay. that you would probably like. Um, oh, the HP Lovecraft one. Oh, I yeah. wanted to get that one. Yeah. But yeah, there's a bunch of... There's five Christmas ones. Christmas with Charles Dickens, with Hans Christian Andersen, with L.M. Montgomery, with Louisa May Alcott, with O. Henry. And then there's one, two, three, four, five, six home books. One... Poems of Morning, Poems for Nighttime, on Friendship, on Nature, of Love, and of Hate. And then there's Edgar Allan Poe Gothic Tales and H.P. Lovecraft Gothic Tales. How fun. And so you could get all of them, and then they'd all be the same little size. And you could put them on your little bookshelf. I would love it. And you have little classics that aren't the classic, but are a classic of your favorite classics. And I didn't talk about this, but the um, the cover and the back cover, they're like illustrated, they're like drawings and they look like it's a full page drawing. It's not like you get a little drawing as the cover. No, it's a full page drawing for the cover and it's beautiful and super interesting. I don't like that it's silver. I wish that the spine was some kind of fun color especially for a book this small because you're going to want it to stand out but that's okay I'm I don't I don't get to design the books and like Liza said if you get all of them and they're all next to each other they'll probably look real nice probably look real nice how fun happy birthday Mary happy birthday Mary we love you and maybe we'll go to Dorset England one day and visit your grave we're definitely going we have so many we should have we have so many mini seasons of little sleep that we have to do but another one is visiting the graves of our favorite authors yes our favorite dead authors like what a fun little treat that would be i'm about to go look up all my favorite dead authors and see where they're at i know mayor uh what what did i just begin to say louisa may alcott 
very would be very easy for us to get to. She's just up in Concord, Mass. Over in Concord, Mass, chilling in the same cemetery as Thoreau and Emerson. Maybe we should walk by them. I will spit on Thoreau's grave. <laughs> hate that motherfucker. Even more than I hate Percy Shelley. Yes, agreed. Big time. But um, okay. yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, what's next week? <laughs> next week, um, we're gonna be reading Harry Styles books, and that could be. I think we both kind of decided that we're gonna read um a book that Harry has read slash loved slash suggested. Yes. Um, but we also had the option to read a book based on a movie that he starred in. We just didn't choose to do that. And I'm very excited because this Harry episode is going to come out the day that I'm at my Harry concert. Yay. Yay. And I'm so excited for you. And Harry's here in the city. He's in the city. Um, so we're, we're, we're reading his faves. He's close by. He's we're manifesting here. him. We feel him all around. Um, I'm in the city. We're going to walk around until we find him. It's going to be great. Hell yeah. What book are you reading? I'm reading Norwegian Wood. By Haruki Murakami. (laughs) I was assuming that everyone knew. And then I was like, people might not know. People might not know. They probably know, but they might not. You might not. And that's okay if you don't. I'm reading... In Watermelon Sugar by Richard Brodigan, Ooh. Ooh, which is like really hard to find and out of print. And I had to get it on thrift books, which I do love thrift books, but it might not come in time. However, I'm now seeing that there is maybe an audio version, audible version of it. It says unabridged in Watermelon Sugar. Maybe that's an option for me. If the, my hard, if my actual book doesn't come in time we'll see but it should be a, it should be a good time for for everybody involved who's excited i'm excited and then marissa's actually gonna be here and i get to hang out with my little baby marissa we're gonna do fun things we're gonna do hot girl shit it's gonna be great and we have more fun reading things that are happening when marissa's mm-hmm. here. So it's all gonna be very good and delicious so that's it. That's it. Go. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. Go get a library card. Get a library card, and that's it. <laughs> that's it. Love you. Peace Bye. out. They don't like us.